Do you remember when you first started to discover how the world works? Like how ice melts, the balls bounce, that hot food hurts your mouth. But after a while, it's okay to eat. How bubbles float and they look like little rainbows and then pop and vanish. How you can hear an echo in a big room or how your shadow gets bigger the closer you move to a lamp. Now, all of these things are examples of how the laws of physics govern our lives. And when we're little, we see those laws played out and then we start to discover them and figure out ways that we might use them to make things better, more interesting, and let's be honest, more fun as we play double bounces on trampolines. Potential energy. (laughs) It's all about that. It is in this exciting moment of discovery that when we're young, we have this incredible chance to capture that curiosity, to nourish it, to nurture it, so that it becomes a way of moving through the world, being okay with not knowing the answer to something and enjoying the discovery of finding out why something is how it is. I remember it myself when I was young and how it set me up for, I guess, a way of looking at the world. And in many ways, I credit my guests today for giving me that gift. Today, I'm speaking with two absolutely legendary science communicators, Rob Morrison and Dean Hutton. For 18 years, together, they brought Australia the Curiosity Show, opening up a world of possibility to generations of Australian kids, me being one of them. It's so great to hear these two passionate educators speak about the importance of science and science communication in our society. And I am sure that you will love this episode as much as I did. But first, we have to play some ads. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. It's very hard sometimes to let go of the things that you have publicly seen you think are right. It, it takes none of us humility. It's, it's, it's part of the scientific process. You've got to be prepared to let something go if the evidence takes you in another way. And that should be a pride for scientists, not um, an injury to their, their pride. One of our Nobel Prize winners, Eccles, Sir John Eccles, had a sort of 
turning point in his career where he stopped doing that about the things he believed in and actually said, no, no, this is wrong. Let me explore this. And it completely changed the way he did his science. He got a Nobel Prize out of it. That was Rob Morrison and Dean Hutton. And this is Osher Ginsberg. Better than yesterday. Hello, welcome. Thanks so much for being here. This is Better Than Yesterday. It's a podcast that is here to make your day today better than yesterday. Does what it says on the box. We've been here since 2013. Mondays and Wednesdays, I'm here with a guest. Fridays, I'm here with you. Though lately, Fridays, I've been letting you know what I've been doing the previous Friday, but more about that in a moment. And um, having conversations with people from all over the world, from all walks of life, some of them experts in their field. And honestly, the things that I take away from this show have made my life so much better. And I, I really hope that you get the same out of this program because I love making it and I love that I get to make it and I love that people want to come on it and um, that people listen. It's super duper fun. My name is Osher Ginsberg. I'm a podcaster. I'm a TV host. I'm an author. I'm a dad. I'm a stepdad. I'm a motorcycle rider. I'm an electric mobility enthusiast. I'm uh, currently making this show at the Factory Theatre in, in Sydney. We had last Friday off because it's Mardi Gras weekend in Sydney and there's heaps better things to do than come see us. Uh, that's no lie. It's Mardi Gras weekend in Sydney. If you've never been, it's fucking amazing. But we are doing uh, 3rd of March, 10th of March, 17th of March. We got asked to do three extra shows, which is super amazing. And the shows I'm talking about are NTNN, NNN, which is Nighttime News Network's national nightly news. It's a fake news show. The show is NTNN, NNN, real stories, fake news. So I read the news of the day. I'm, I'm the newsreader. I'm reading the news of the day. And my news team tell the stories. And it's uh, so much fun. People have been coming every single week, which is the best. And it sold out. It fucking sold out. It sold out last week, which is the last time we did this. It's amazing. So get on it because we've got some extra shows added. The promoter said, can you guys do three more? So yeah, we absolutely can. Thank you very much, Tom. So we'll be doing three more shows in Sydney. So there's still a chance to catch it. The special guests have been super fun. And we are then going to Melbourne, Melbourne International Comedy Festival. We're doing 10 nights at the Malthouse Theatre. The best. It's going to be super good. And I just love making it. I love that I'm making it with the people that I'm making it with. I love that the audience laugh. And I mean, less like the other night, if you listened on Friday's show, the other night we were telling a story about how just fucking horrific it is that we're going into a state election in New South Wales where both the parliament in power and the opposition are promising that they will outlaw exorcisms on children should they be elected uh, as part of gay conversion therapy. Now, for me, I'm thinking, well, A, that's horrific, and B, why wasn't this uh, a headline in 1823, not 2023? Uh, it's fucking awful that this shit is, we actually have to make a law for this now because it's happening and it's ruining lives. And it's terrible and it's devastating and the after effects are horrendous for the people involved. And yet while we told the story, the whole place was just laughing because using comedy, we're able to laugh while we explore what it means that we have a society where this is happening. 
And so rather than disengage from this incredibly painful thing, we're able to laugh and engage and have a bit of a think about it. And it's a very powerful way of, of thinking and talking about the world. And I couldn't be more grateful to my cast who are all just genius, genius at what they do. And uh, every single person that comes along, because the show's not a show unless there's an audience. Um, without an audience, there's nothing. So look, I'd love to see you there. It's super good. We're doing Melbourne International Comedy Festival. And we also have been invited to do the uh, Sydney Comedy Festival, but Tickets uh, for that aren't on sale just yet, but tickets for everything else are on sale right now. Uh, the link is in the show notes. And if you want to know more about the Sydney Comedy Festival, in the show notes, you'll also find a link that'll take you to a page where you can put the email in for the newsletter. I can't even talk about it. You can jump on my mailing list, sign up to my mailing list. I'm getting right on that and trying to get as many updates out through the emails as possible. So I've been experimenting for ages trying to find the best way to communicate, but just I'm beset at every side by the the evils of pay-per-play, uh, <laughs> be it social media platforms. Email seems to be it. So if you have an email address that you would like to hear from me on, uh, pop it in that box and I will let you know when I'm coming to your town. So let me tell you about my guest today. Rob Morrison and Dean Hutton are two legendary scientists and science communicators from Adelaide in Australia. For 18 years, they've brought science to the living rooms of my country as hosts of The Curiosity Show. They're absolute pioneers in kids' television. They assumed intelligence of their audience. They brought complicated concepts to life with simple and practical demonstrations, just using everyday household objects. The show did what it says on the box. It encouraged curiosity to be okay with the feeling of not knowing why something is the way it is. Using that feeling to drive an exploration to an answer. Wearing turtlenecks with great moustaches and all to the soundtrack of some excellently odd synthesizer music, these guys paved the way for the megastars of science communication that we see today. It's no lie, I absolutely loved this show when I was a kid, and I was thrilled to discover that they brought, they, they purchased the rights to their show back, so they own their content now, and they launched a YouTube channel. So when Wolfie asks me, why does the air come out of the balloon like that? I can dial up the segment that I remember from when I was a kid and show him the answer, just how I learned the answer. Now, two things before we kick off. There's some pretty hectic stories here about a character called Humphrey B. Bear. Now, if you don't know or you're too young, Humphrey B. Bear was a kid's TV puppet, a giant pantsless bear who mimed and danced and mugged through a half hour of kids TV every day with one or more human co-hosts. And Dean does sound a little different to how you might remember him. He is quite open about the fact that he has Parkinson's disease and only recently it has started to affect the way that he speaks. Don't worry, he's still as sharp as ever, but he does sound a bit different. So come spend a delightful afternoon with the men who open up the eyes of millions of Australian kids to the importance and the wonder and the, the reverence of science. Rob Morrison and Dean Hutton. Gentlemen, thank you so much for making the time to speak with me today. Uh, I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. It's a, a pleasure. Great pleasure. I, I will start with my Curiosity Show story. I'm sure you've been shared a squillion. Um, my mum and dad were both doctors. We were raised with a very kind of evidence-based uh, look at the world. And if new evidence shows up, then whatever we believed yesterday doesn't matter because now there's a, a new treatment. This is what we'll go with. Mum was always real careful about what we ingested into our eyeballs when we were little. In 1978, in Adelaide, 
when I was only in Australia for like three years at this point, four years, my mom went and bought, I can only imagine it cost $10,000, the very first Akai VHS recorder. The only thing that she would record was Curiosity Show because she said, this is the only thing worth watching on television. Kids, if you want to watch anything, watch this. And we would just watch tapes and tapes and tapes of YouTube for years. It was a, a big machine. I remember waiting for the tape to loop on. Come on, come on. And trying to get the ready things to track properly instead of flickering and the changing. Oh, the nightmare. I've still got a couple of mine stacked away in plastic bags because, you know, the, the technology changes so much that if you check out your old device, then you've got a whole lot of stuff you can't play anymore. So I keep it all. I've got a shed full of this stuff. So, Gentlemen, uh, two, uh, two sheds for. Two sheds? Oh, I see two how sheds. it is with Bob and Dean. They're just kind of one yeah. up in each other. You've got one shed of yeah. VHS? Oh, <laughs> no, he used to do this. He used to do this stuff professionally, so he had a bit more than me. Gentlemen, did you, did you understand that you were having that kind of impact, that you were offering parents who cared uh, an alternative for their children? I think we were just doing things that we found to be fun. Uh, we we both liked um, carrying out experiments and seeing what would happen. And uh, we 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 didn't know each other when we were kids growing up, but we, when we met, um, uh, we uh, found that we had very, very similar interests in uh, in why things happen and how things work. It's it's sort of important to know also that the show was never really planned. I mean, it happened almost by accident and default when the, the law changed and every station found that they had to start producing these things for, for these programs for children of school going age. And so we were sort of brought in on a preschooler program and for, for some years we mixed it up with Humphrey Bear. That was the nightmare. But um, we just... We, what, what, what's the nightmare about working with Humphrey B. Bear? I mean, uh, look. he has no pants. Let's, let's start from there. Well, well, really, he was – Humphrey couldn't talk, so he did everything in mind. And um, so he – and he was – he had a three-year-old audience, you know, three-, four-year-old audience. So in come these jolly academics, and they're after a 10- to 13-year-old audience. So Humphrey – well, the people inside Humphrey, there's several of them – could feel us sort of, you know, taking their audience away, and they didn't like us. And so Humphrey would usually get get behind you and upstage you by doing all this stuff behind you and mucking up your props. I think with Dean, they actually destroyed the props. Yeah, one time I I was doing a, a segment on insects, and I had um, co cockroaches in a glass dish, and uh, I showed kids how you actually uh, pick up a cockroach with a a match, a match stick or a toothpick with a bit of Vaseline on the end and you touch it on the back of the insect and then you can lift it up, turn it over, look at the segments and the antenna and the, um, the, the legs. And uh, as I was doing this, uh, Humphrey uh, suddenly grabbed a, a rubber mallet which he'd planted in the studio before the oh. segments started and he grabbed the uh, mountains started pounding the these cockroaches, with, which were breaking legs off and flying in different directions. And um, uh, the producer uh, of the program at, at that time, Ian Fairweather, said, "Humphrey, you can't do that." 
And uh, Humphrey, if he got angry about something, he'd pull his head off. So he'd lift his head off and this great bear suit with a little head poking out the top said, Humphrey doesn't like beaky, grippy crawlies. Uh, and so fortunately I had some spares and we redid the segment, but that, so that part didn't go to air. I got, I got my revenge. We had an outside broadcast unit, which we, uh, uh, we took out to my university, elect, uh, electoring sort of university uh, laboratory. And I set it up with all sorts of things to look good. And one of them was a Van de Graaff generator. Now, the kids have these things in science fairs where you, you, know, you, you generate about 50,000 volts and you stand on something and your hair all stands on end because of electrostatic electricity. And this thing was grinding away in the background. It was new and it was a nice dry day. And Humphrey was doing his usual thing behind me, trying to put my audience off while I was talking, and started pointing at this thing. And I thought, well, this will be interesting. You don't point at a Van de Graaff generator. And he just got a bit close. And there's a, there's a crack like a pistol shot and an arc of blue fire, I swear about a metre long, leapt into the outstretched digit of this unhappy bear who did a quick 360, and from the depths of this woolly suit, you just heard, <laughs> which I think was the only time he spoke on television and a most inappropriate word for his audience, but it shut him up. He didn't do that anymore. So, it was, it, I mean, the, it was characteristic of the time, in the, and everyone was fumbling. You had to produce this stuff for, teenage, for primary school kids. What were they? What do we have? Jam these blokes in and hope for the best. So the, the show was never planned, um, and, and to begin with, it was a one-hour show, and it was very, it was awful. It was all things to all kids, and you can't do that. And Dean and I were unhappy with it, and eventually we said, look, uh, you know, why don't we make it a half-hour show with science and technology, and the other presenters can go on to a different program, which was kind of fun and games. And that suited everybody, and that sort of was the start of the Curiosity Show, fortunately, that people remember. But... It really was, it, we never planned it. It just evolved around what we had done as children without television. And it actually had several different names. Uh, to begin with, it was going to be a special version of Humphrey Bear aimed at, at school-aged children instead of preschool, which Humphrey had been part of. Uh, so um, he uh, was there to appeal, apparently, to school-aged children. Now, we doubted whether that was working. And in fact, the, one of the Humphrey Bears uh, was rather jealous of the uh, attention that the uh, the bear got over the actor who was playing the bear. And uh, he, he said to me one day, when he was un, unhappy about the part of the script and what it had uh, Humphrey doing, and he said to me, Dean, he said, if they ever sack me uh, from the, the network, uh, I, I know what I'm going to do. And he, I'll get my own back. Uh, I said, how will you do that? And he said, I've got a friend at the abattoirs. I'll fill up Humphrey, uh, a Humphrey suit with uh, guts from the abattoirs, and then I'll uh, find the tallest building in Adelaide, and I'll hold Humphrey by the ankles and waggle him around till all the... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> television and radio and the press as well uh, gathered around and, and then I push him over. Uh, uh, it, didn't, it didn't happen, but that was what, what uh, the man inside Humphrey thought he'd do to maintain the plaudits that he, thinks he thought he deserved. I should, should add uh, one point. Um, I, uh, 
you, you may notice that my voice is uh, a little hesitant and uh, lower volume. I have Parkinson's. Uh, I've had it for about 12 years, but the last couple of years it's uh, sort of caught up with me. I, I, I have medication for it, but uh, it's slowed me down a bit. Uh, I don't have the tremor that some people with Parkinson's have, but uh, and I'm, uh, the, the brain is still working well and uh, 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 I'm still involved in all sorts of things, but uh, I, I should explain that that's why I, I may sound a little different than I did back in the uh, uh, 18 years of Humphrey. There were some children visiting Channel 9 where we made the program who I think thought Humphrey had gone off the roof because the, 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 it was a very big padded woolly suit and hum, there were a lot of so they used to hang in a in a cupboard full of ultraviolet to keep the germs down. And you open the door, it was like Bluebeard's cupboard, you know, with heads on the rack and oh torsos over here and pants over there. But there were several suits, and, of course, the actors in them would go out and do um, presentation things, promos. They could only do it for about half an hour on a hot day or they'd faint. They, they just oh got terribly hot. They had to be taken off by the handle. But uh, the suits got incredibly sweaty and, and, and you couldn't clean them. So they had to be put under ultraviolet to keep the sort of festering microbes at bay. And to dry them, they'd take them out the back of the Channel 9, Channel 9 take the head off and put it on, a, say, a wheelbarrow, and the torso would be draped over a ladder and the pants over something else uh, to dry them out. And there were some school kids visiting the channel one day and they were taken up to the top level and one of them looked out the window and there was Humphrey on the ground sort of exploded. It was funny. Charles probably still having nightmares about it. You talk about an interesting time in Australian television, which we're actually having again as the government brings in, is trying to bring in new regulations for streaming services Mm. about Mm. using Australian content and suddenly this law changed. Suddenly the Australian television market is making it up as they go along. Who's made programs for three-year-olds before? Nobody. Who's made science programs for 10-year-olds before? Nobody. What do we do? Let's go. Do you think uh, people underestimated? Because you say it was for 10 to 13-year-olds. I was four and I understood everything. I watch with uh, Wolfie now. He's we got two kids. One's nearly 19, one's three. Wolfgang can, has been understanding these kind of concepts of how the universe works. You know, yes, they're the laws of thermodynamics, but you know, we learn that things eventually cool down. Yes, everything will fall. You know, yeah. you know, things. The balloon will always get smaller. The you know, the pressure systems will change. Do you think that we underestimate or have underestimated small kids' capacities to understand this stuff? Yes. I think we have under, underestimated the ability of young people to understand all sorts of things. Uh, that's why initially uh, the Channel 9 production people thought that, well, we've got uh, Humphrey Bear, a successful uh, television character. All we'll do is we'll say to the team, making five programs uh, a, a week, which they had been for a couple of years, uh, we'll ask them to make one of those five programs, the Friday program, aimed at uh, school-age children. So... For four days, Humphrey's a, a preschool character, and uh, for the the, four, the fifth day, uh, he suddenly is talking um, about interesting topics for young people. Well, um, I, I was I, I'd been working with Humphrey doing science for preschool scholars for a couple of years, and they asked me if I would come in on the uh, planning group to develop this uh, fifth program for the, the year. So 
I did that for, for a year and a bit, and then uh, I went overseas to study, and Rob came in to, to do the, the job that I'd been doing, uh, educational advisor. When I came back from studying overseas, um, they said, uh, Rob and Dean, you, you know each other from the past. Uh, would you be interested in working together? And we said yes. And so from then on, we, uh, for 18 years, we um, were the educational advisors, script writers, uh, presenters. By the way, that first program uh, was called the F program um, because uh, when the channel uh, production team got the request that they would be required to uh, to make one program a week for school-aged children. The uh, producer at the time let fly with a, a word starting with F, and uh, so it was officially called the Humphrey F program. And my, my papers on the show are in the library now, and, and all the rundowns have, you know, the F program at the top. No one knew why, but it was that was why. That is but glorious. You, you make a you make a very good point. I mean, that a lot of people talk down to children, and and it's really maddening to hear. And they they think children can't handle big words. Try children with dinosaur names; they love them. They love them. So there's an awful lot which you know a child who's expected to be intelligent and and uh, take things in will do. I we tend to say ten to thirteen because by law we had to be for the preschool, for the um, children of primary age. So we tended to emphasise that was the age we were going to. And also, a lot of people would come to us and say, oh, you know, how do I get on television? What do you do? And we both used to train teachers, and teachers are oddly often quite bad on television to begin with because they're used to looking for faces. And in a studio, it's the last thing to look for to get feedback because the cameramen are in a camera and the director's looking at the screen and the producer looking at, you know, there's no one, to, no one to look at to gauge how you're going. So you have to invent your own and you have to learn to look through the camera, which is a very odd thing because it's a kind of black hole. And imagine your audience looking back at you and you never try and imagine a whole audience because, you know, talking to the girls and boys as people used to do is death. You talk to one kid. And for me, it was always this intelligent 10-year-old you assume intelligence but not background, so you don't, you know, you don't get into jargon. But you look at one one person through this lens and talk to that person. And for me it was a ten year old. So I tend to assume the kind of audience is 10, 10 to thirteen. But there are all those factors creeping in there of le- legality and and presentation style that tend to make us talk about ten to thirty. But you know, we have our audience and it still is sort of um, you know, preschool to uh, adult. You can check that online now with analytics and YouTube. You know exactly who's watching. Yeah, and it's extraordinary. You say that, that was one of the, the greatest pieces of advice uh, that I was given when I started in radio. It was like, there's no hey you out there. There's no all you people. You're talking to mm-hmm. one person at mm-hmm. a time sitting in their car. There's only one. There's only ever one person listening. And as yeah. is often the case, yeah. there's only ever one person watching. And it changes the way you talk down a microphone or down a camera to be something that's uh, you know very very personable and very interesting. You, you talked about jargon there, Rob, and I, for, for a long time, because you both were balancing very serious academic, uh, essentially day jobs. You, you also had these academic careers that you were upholding, you know, publishing papers and publishing books at the same time as simplifying, you know, 
this humongous peer-reviewed piece of science into a three-minute segment. What do, what are your thoughts about how some science kind of barricades itself behind these walls of jargon and is almost very, it's not exclusive, it's like there's there's no democratization. It's like, oh, you don't understand this five-syllable word, so therefore you can't participate in this conversation. What are your thoughts around that? Well, I found, and I'm sure Rob did too, that the... Um, People involved in the technical side of the uh, program, whether it be um, scriptwriters and uh, people working on pre-production bits or the editing later on, um, but they very often bend over backwards to uh, do things that maybe hadn't been done before in the studio. I know one time I came in, it been a, a week in which we'd watched with interest uh, the uh, Eclipse of the of the moon, uh, and uh, so I, I thought it would be good if we had a, a this is on live television before Humphrey. And I was working on a program called Channel Nine, as um, aimed at school age kids. So um, I said, now I got in there, uh, and I had ten minutes to rehearse the segment before it went to air live, and. Um, so I said, right, what I like the, the, ca- the camera to do is to rotate in a, in a huge circle and uh, simulate somebody standing uh, in a desert on Earth watching uh, the eclipse go through its stages. And um, the producer said it can't be done because the uh, turning circle of the camera, those huge studio cameras, was larger than the studio, the small, the small new studio which they used. So they said it, it physically is not possible. And uh, one of the cameramen came over and he said, I think we can do it if we use three guys on one camera. And the producer said, what do you mean? And uh, he said, well, that, as one guy's pushing the camera, the other guy will be rotating the camera in the reverse direction uh, so that it actually produces a smaller circle than is feasible in the uh, the real studio and the director said three minutes to go and so we had three minutes to rehearse this camera movement which had never been tried before uh, which showed that you could have a circle bigger than the studio in the studio itself and we did it and it worked and uh, it was because of the cooperation of the uh, technical people and the production people uh, and it was always that way with the uh, Channel 9 people I love the problem solving of live TV. I love it. But your, your point about jargon's a good one. It maddens me. I mean, what, 25 years ago or so, we created, I was a founding member, we created the Australian Science Communicators as a, a direct attempt to try and get the communication of science less jargonistic and less sort of rarefied. Uh, I was the national vice president for about six years, I think, in later years. But that's that's actually been a t- tremendously useful movement to try and get, you know, scientists A, to communicate, and B, to communicate without using their jargon. The trouble is, with some fields, it's impossible. I used to teach human biology to my students. And when you come to naming parts of the body, there are no other terms than femur and esophagus and things like that. You can't keep talking about your, your tummy and your guts. I mean, there are some fields, and particularly new and growing fields, where 
they're into something new. There is no name for it. So you have to invent it. You think of, of the terminology around computers of software and bits and bytes and all of that. So there's no alternative but the jargon. And and if you have a lot of it at once for a child, it, for anyone, it's it's mystifying. So I suppose in a way we got out of it and that we could choose what we did. And I don't think any of us ever did a a segment on subatomic particles, for example, because I think that would still be hard to do without having to use jargon and concepts that were really uh, too too difficult. But certainly, I mean, you find it all the time in people trying to be impressive, and unfortunately it's uh, the, the bureaucracy gets hold of it, and they write this interminable sort of impenetrable stuff, which is just full of jargon to make it sound impressive. Economics does a bit of it. And it's the last thing you need. You just need somebody who would explain it plainly. It used to be in academia long ago that the professor was the one who taught the first years. Why? Because they knew their subject so well, they were able to do it without being mystifying and without using jargon. And that was a good practice. We also found that um, it's it's possible to um, do things that haven't been done before uh, if you're willing to bend, up, bend over backwards and uh, try something, that it may even be very simple, but may help explain the concept. For example, talking about nuclear energy and uh, the way in which uh, a huge amount of energy can be released by the splitting of one tiny atom. So to, to explain the first time I did this on television, I used a mouse a mouse traps and ping pong balls. Uh, in, in an aquarium, uh, 20 mouse traps, uh, 40 ping pong balls attached to the uh, spring, loaded spring of the mouse trap. You throw in one uh, ping pong ball, uh, it, it's model of, of uh, the uh, atom being a, a set mouse trap. That goes off, two fly in the air, four fly in the air, eight, 16, and within seconds. The whole lot has released its energy. So it's a, a very simple model using everyday things uh, to explain a, quite an elaborate process. And uh, we did that, as I said, with Humphrey Bear, first of all, uh, uh, 20 mousetraps. Uh, later on, I, when I was working on Hey Hat Saturday with uh, Daryl and the others in Melbourne, uh, we did it with 1,000 mousetraps and 2,000 ping pong balls. But, uh, I would have been in the art department that day. Yeah. <laughs> but we're always looking for simple ideas to convey uh, simple techniques and simple materials to uh, convey what might have been quite complex te- uh, concepts. Part of me really wants something like that to be on the floor of uh the House of Commons here in Australia. Part of me wants, if we're speaking about climate policy, for example, a very, very simple demonstration there in the room going, and this is why. I I sometimes feel that when it comes to really important things like, uh, you know, climate science, like global warming, food security, nuclear power, because it's covered in jargon and covered in impenetrable kind of concepts, it's too scary, so I don't want it. And therefore, something that actually makes sense when it comes yeah. to the laws of physics, becomes these things that people don't want because it's frightening. And it can be fun. Yeah, it is fun, but it's a very good point. Television really grew out of radio. And still today, if you shut your eyes while you're watching television and listen to what's going on, 
you're pretty well right. You know, it's it's radio with pictures. And the best television, if you shut your eyes, you, you won't know what's going on because it's telling the story or doing what it has to do through the visual element. It's a visual uh, process. I think with our segments, you would be hard put to follow them if you had your eyes shut because we, we showed stuff, we did stuff, we used the visual elements. Um, and we actually pioneered a few of them because, you know, back there, you were, uh, as you say, uh, as we say, you, you're working as you went along. But a graphic and, you know, a picture and a thousand words and all that. Some years ago, we started in Adelaide the Australian Science Media Centre. It's the best thing that's ever happened for science journalism in the country because it was modelled on the British one. And in part of that, we actually started to develop graphics that, you know, say a story breaks about climate change. Some little journalist doing the rounds up in Whoop Whoop no science background at all. What do I do? How do I handle this? Who do I speak to? You get onto the Science Media Centre, they'll put you in touch with an expert who's already selected for being able to talk about these, and you can download a graphic for your program. And that's really important because, as you say, you need these graphics or you need these diagrams. They can be very misleading. When you get people showing you the greenhouse effect, you often get, I can't really show this to a, a sort of radio audience, but imagine a ball the side of an orange, they'll often show an atmosphere which is almost half as wide again with the rays bouncing around inside it. The reality is if you take the Earth, the atmosphere is about as thick as a coat of paint. When you see that, you realise it doesn't take a lot to fill that atmosphere up with gunk. So the, the graphic is essential if it does its job well. It's also equally dangerous if it gets it wrong. And also we were creating techniques that hadn't been tried before. Um, for example, um, the way cameras are used in the studio, typically they call them the three-camera studio. There are three huge television cameras on wheels, uh, doll- dollies moving around, and uh, typically in a live program, whether it be sport or entertainment or education, uh, there'd be three cameras and each would have a purpose. One would be showing a, a long shot or wide shot of the, the whole studio. Uh, the second camera was the medium cl- medium shot um, showing a, a person maybe from the waist up and then uh, the third camera showing close-ups, uh, getting in close enough to show things that are being held by the hand. Well, that was a traditional way in which cameras were used and had been for many years. But when we came along with our plans for the Curiosity Show, Rob and I would say, no, we don't want to use it long shot, medium shot, close-up. We want medium shot, close-up, and extreme close-up. We use that third camera to get in so tight that the, the lounge room television set uh, being watched by 10-year-old in a beanbag, is now seeing something larger than uh, the refrigerator when it's really only the size of uh, a finger. So we were using the three traditional cameras in a different way because we were trying to convey uh, the visual impact of close-ups, extreme close-ups in particular. And and sometimes, I mean, if you're making something and you're watching somebody do it, if you're not experienced, you've got to, in your mind, sort of turn that around and see it from your point of view, which is the kind of reverse. So we'd get some of these cameras over the shoulder. 
you think of playing a guitar, when you look down and, and look at what your fingers are doing, I see the guitar behind you, the bass. Um, yeah. You know, what you're seeing is not at all what you're seeing when you see somebody in front of you playing a guitar. You have to make that conversion. So if you can get a camera over your shoulder and they are seeing your hands doing something as you're seeing them, it can make it very much easier to show somebody how to do something intricate. I mean, it was the early days of television. You had to find your feet. We we talked about the sort of one child at home watching. In our childhood, without television, the great delight of my life was to come home and find my adult cousin there because he'd teach you tricks, he'd do things. And so you're fixated really on head and shoulder. And so you don't really want to be, as most of those education programs at that time were, somebody in a classroom standing behind a desk. You know, that, that's where the way they started framing these things because that's what you're familiar with in education. We tried to get the head and shoulders, which is what you're really focusing on when you when you got your favorite uncle. Yeah. So we tried to do things like that that made it get into the, the, the viewer's head rather than be the kind of standoffish person saying, you out there, girls and boys, this is what we're doing today, put it on the chalkboard. I've always admired Sumner Miller because they stuck him in a classroom with a with a blackboard and chalk behind a desk often. And that's not a very thrilling kind of presentation when you're doing rather abstract physics comments. But I, he, he used to do it, I think, by generating a kind of fake anger. And that gave his stuff enormous energy. You know, he'd poke his interlocutors and address them sternly. It was all an act, but it gave such energy to these rather dour black and white settings that he got away with it pretty well. Talking about Julius Sumner Miller, he was uh, he was brought over from Sydney where he'd been working at the university, one of the universities there. We brought him over to Adelaide, a group of science teachers, because we wanted him to present the Apollo Stadium, uh, a science show for, for kids, and uh, he, he certainly did that. It took a lot of planning, and he came over the day of the show, and Julius Sumner Miller showed the six or, six or eight of us teachers who uh, were working on planning this show together. And uh, so we were re rehearsing and setting up the, the experiments and uh, uh, ready for the, the evening performance. And I, I said to him halfway through the setup, I said, Professor, um, you c can't possibly do all of these activities and uh, experiments uh, on the, at the shows the night. Why are we setting up so many? And he said, young man, uh, I don't know how, how the spirit will take me, but I'm ready to go in any direction. Uh, and he was. <laughs> I'd, I'd spent 45 minutes setting up and check, checking the Van de Graaff generator, which uh, makes big sparks, uh, the sort that Rob talked about earlier. And uh, four times during that um, performance that, that evening, uh, Julius Sumner-Miller, walked towards the Van de Graaff generator, which I had known because uh, I'd set it up and tested it and I knew it would work, and he walked towards it and then he walked straight past it when demonstrated something else. A little later, he walked towards it again. Four times it happened. He uh, walked towards it, almost used my Van de Graaff generator, but gave up on the, la on the last hint. Uh, but at the end of the set up during the day, something interesting had happened, which has lived with our family ever since. My eight-year-old son came with me so that he could meet the professor and uh, 
help with the simple tasks in setting up the experiments, which he did. At the end of the setup and before the show started, uh, I said to my son David, would you like to meet the professor? And he said, oh, yes. So I took him over and said, Professor, this is my son David. He'd like to thank you for allowing him to be part of the setup and planning. And uh, Julius Sunmiller looked at my eight-year-old son, he looked at me and he fired his brow and he said, I'll give you advice which will last you the rest of your life. David, with wide eyes, uh, looked at the professor wondering what he was going to come out with. And professor said, never put gum in your hair. And he turned on his heel and walked away. David said to me, never put gum in your hair. What does that mean, Dad? I said, I have no idea. But in our family, if it's a birthday party or Christmas get-together or something and somebody says something that nobody can understand, everyone else says, never put gum in your hair. We've got Julius to thank for that saying in our family. He's, he's not wrong. <laughs> no, he's not wrong. I guess you know you're talking about a you know a live science show, which um, you know, and these things go back hundreds of years. Uh, you know, there's these great stories, those Christmas lectures that happened in London, mm-hmm. where thousands of people would queue. They did six a day in these giant state. Three thousand people would come and see them, uh, and they're extraordinary. You've both done this. I know, Dean, you've done it perhaps some more than Rob. Like going to a school, seeing the kids face to face, being the one that shows up with the nitrous oxide and blows things up. You're dealing with not only the kids that are happy to see you there but you also you're dealing with the kids who are like i oh, stuff this i don't like mm-hmm. this teacher here come. we're going to punish this guy today i don't care if he's on tv let's go w- what is it about what you do that when you're on stage when you're doing those demonstrations unlocks uh, even the most difficult kids to communicate with what do you think it is it's for a start it's picking the right kid At time and time teachers have said to me after a show is over and it's gone well and particularly the demonstrations might have worked uh, with uh, great applause from the students who were watching and the teachers come up to me afterwards and said, it happened again. I said, what happened again? They said, you, you picked out the worst possible kid in the school and had him up there uh, performing. But it is a fact that uh, very often the troublemakers in classroom uh, are happy to get up on stage. Uh, they think they're going to be made fun of, but they find that, that they're involved in uh, a demonstration which means something not only to them but every one of the students watching. And I think in, in, a, in a way it helps them to not only increase their understanding but also their uh, reputation with the other kids for being part of the program. There's another element to that. Let me turn it around a bit. We, we get a lot of people still. Uh, they come up and they're very kind and they say, oh, you did such a lot to turn children onto science. It's very flattering, but I don't think it's true because if you think about it, uh, well, children love science or they love the stuff that science deals with. What child doesn't like? Dinosaurs, volcanoes, earthquakes, space, comets, you know, the list goes on, guts, all of that. But by the time they get to the end of primary, most of them have lost that. So the question isn't how you turn kids onto science. The question is, what is it that's turning them off? And I think that's a fundamental question. When Dean and I started, everybody knew that kids needed more science. It's far worse today. It's much worse today when you look at the way we've, our children have slid steadily down 
the international table of understanding of science and maths. It's much worse now than it was back in 72. So there's something that's steadily making sure that by the time they get to the end of primary, kids don't identify as liking science anymore. That's terrifying to me. But it doesn't start that way. It doesn't start that way. And if you get them early, you've got a really captive audience because, you know, most of them either still enjoy or can remember enjoying the things that you deal with. Dean, you mentioned that pulling the kid out of the crowd and the teacher saying, oh, you picked the worst kid. There's a, a good mate of mine, uh, Ruben Meerman, and he used to work on, um, uh, not Quantum, the one that came after that one. Uh, Catalyst. Catalyst. He worked on Catalyst mm. for a while. Mm. And he, he has said exactly the same, I don't know if the same teacher, uh, <laughs> the same school, but he says exactly the same thing. And he'll often deliberately pick the one that's doing the mucking up. And he says he has exactly the same experience, like those kids, like, oh, I'm engaging you now. I'm engaging you in something that is interesting and exciting. And look at this. We're turning this solid into a gas. We're turning this gas into flame. Isn't that amazing? They often self-select too. You know, say, I need, an, I need a, a participant or somebody, a volunteer. And it's those kids who say, me, me. They have no idea what they're going for, but they want to be in it. Yeah, just to your point there, Rob, Ruben talks about we teach kids the alphabet how like the little bits and pieces that make up the words that we use we teach kids numbers like these kind of concepts that help us kind of calculate things but we never teach them the alphabet of the universe Mm. we never teach them Mm. the building blocks of the world they actually live in Mm. and every kid wants to understand how what child hasn't pulled apart a toy people want to know how stuff works (laughs) it's it's interesting that you mentioned Ruben Meerman um when I was in uh a school in the, the Gold Coast, uh, Queensland, a few years ago doing a science show. Um, I, I, I looked at the out among the audience partway through the show and there would have been 150 uh, to 200 students in the audience and the teachers were standing at the back and the side of the room and, uh, and I thought I, I met most of the teachers before but I don't met, I didn't meet that guy standing in the middle at the back. So after the show was over, the, the mystery guy came up to me and introduced himself. It was Ruben Merman, and he heard that I was coming to the school and he was in the area, so he thought he'd drop in and and uh, see how it went. And uh, he, he was delighted to, uh, to have been included in, in part of it, and I was surprised to find out that, that he was a guy who was uh, wanting to to do with his life, one of the things that I'd found helpful and useful, and that's uh, to share um, activities of science with young people. And Ruben has been doing that ever since. I did want to ask Rob over over your career outside of of television. You were, I guess, you were able to use what television gave you and the the familiarity that people have with you and your authority to help you in efforts around conservation, uh, particularly around um, yellow-tailed black cockatoos and and such. What's changed in your mind since, you know, when you first started in conservation uh, to now? And what do you think, uh, you know, people who are in power and people in charge of policy now need to be kind of looking towards around around conservation in our country? Oh, well, that's a colossal question with many answers. It is. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I got into biology, I got into uh, science because I liked animals. I ended up doing a, a doctorate in brain anatomy and physiology, which meant I had to uh, deal with experimental animals and knock them off. And I didn't like doing that. So I went back to my first love, which was 
animals as such and started again, and that sort of was more natural history. And there's a difference. Darwin wasn't a scientist. He was a natural a naturalist. And back in the 75s, there was a huge movement in Australia. Uh, Vincent Saventi had this Wildlife Australia magazine. The Australian Museum put out a wonderful magazine, what used to win prizes with. There was the Australian Conservation Foundation moving to get field study centres. And, and, you know, there's a huge move towards better knowing your Australian animals and plants. Uh, Rigby was the producer of field guides in, in all sorts of things. I did one. That's all gone. It's, you know, it's, it's now sort of fringe groups or activist groups, but the kind of movement that we had in Australia, it did persist for a while with things like Water Watch, a tremendously good program in schools. I was the state chair of it. And then somebody in Canberra one day pulled the plug on the funding and it all collapsed overnight, this huge volunteer educational program about water, which we desperately need, is now gone. Picked up in bits and pieces by uh, a few councils and things, but that's all. So all that, all that movement to get children and people to understand their own environment uh, it, it just suddenly collapsed. I have no idea why, but uh, that was really distressing to me to see that we're worse off now than we were then. We're also far worse off because the steady encroachment of development into what's left of our remnant habitat has been so colossally damaging. And then on top of that, you put fires through what's left of that habitat. Yeah, you're really in a very bad way. So um, I was lucky in that Dean and I, we, we never really planned it like this, but we found out it had happened after a while. I talked about the show evolving. But Dean tended to evolve to, pro, to segments on things like physics, um, geology, technology. I tended to evolve to things like music and animals. And, you know, these are all the things from our childhood and, and interest. But because I was involved with the animals, I, I did animal segments, and I used to get in with animal segments and do them with the animals in the zoo. I never liked doing them through bars or cages. You want to get in with the beastie and handle them. Yeah. And in the end, that got me the presidency of uh, both our zoos in South Australia run by a society, and I became the president of that. So one thing leads to another. But, again, the genesis, I think, was the stuff that we were comfortable with. Dean, I think, talked about Sumner Miller, saying he didn't know where he would go in the night. That's, that's classic for a good teacher. And we have an awful lot of teachers in school, through no fault of their own, struggling like mad to do the science lesson, and they're kind of one step ahead if that. They don't dare deviate from what the kind of notes say you must do. And we go to schools and people say, what do we do on Monday? Give us a sort of rundown of, of an activity for Monday to get us through that week. Uh, people have tried to define good teachers, uh, and I don't know if anyone's done it properly, but I reckon there are two elements you need. One, you've got to know your stuff well, and two, it's got to matter to you that your audience comes to like it or love it the way you do. Put those things together. You can teach in any style. Some Villa obviously had that. But an awful lot of teachers now are having to do the stuff which they've read up the night before, and it conveys no authority, and it is extremely hard for them to convey enthusiasm, and above all, to have the ability to say, well, we don't know. How do we find out? That's what science is. It's not frogs and tadpoles and space. It's how do we investigate this problem and eradicate the wrong answers? 
And one thing you'll find out if you work as a science communicator, and that is that very much teamwork is an essential part of this. This came home to me many years ago when I started working on Channel 9. Uh, I'd been doing some television work with the ABC, Channel 2, schools for uh, television for schools, but uh, I was invited to present a weekly segment on Channel 9 and I came across somebody I didn't expect to, and that was a, a former student of mine from Henley High School. His name was Malcolm Foreman, and he was a bit of a lad, like fun and messing around at school, but he'd got a job as a prop boy uh, at Channel 9, uh, shifting things around, then an assistant cameraman, and six, six years down the track, and I'd watched his career uh, being described in television, newspapers and so on, uh, but I was invited to do this live show for Channel 9 and I was there in the studio and uh, I looked across and there was Malcolm, the cameraman, who had become the, the number one cameraman for Channel 9 uh, after being a, a lad at school and enjoying messing around, but he had a, an enormous grin on his face as he was waiting for the cameras to roll for the next segment. And I walked over to him and I said, Malcolm, uh, I'm delighted that I see you in, in this form as the chief cameraman, but, but why the big grin? What's so, what's so funny? And he said, I was thinking about it, uh, Mr. Hutton. He said, um, uh, six years ago I was a student, you were the teacher. He said, now in a way... I'm the teacher. I'm helping you to understand this enormous camera of mine. And, and I said, that's very true. Just just real quick, you mentioned Henley High. This is like, I don't know if this will ever make the cut, but did you ever work with Remus Degalas, art teacher? Yeah, yes, yes. <laughs> that's my uncle. <laughs> it's a small world, yeah. Hey, Adelaide, you know. <laughs> Adelaide. Just taking a moment to let you know about the live show once again, NTNN, NNN. You can get tickets in the show notes if you want to know about any upcoming shows, be it in uh, Melbourne or upcoming shows in Sydney or beyond that. There's a mailing list link in the show notes. If you just click on the link tree there, you can find a way to put your email in there. You can also get tickets for all the shows that are on at the moment. There's three more in Sydney, uh, March 3rd, 10th and 17th. And we start at the Melbourne Comedy Festival from the 30th of March. Uh, We're doing 10 nights. It's going to be sick. We're back in a moment with Robin Dane. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You've been at this for a while. 
I'm nearly 50 myself. I wear hearing aids, I wear glasses. I have had three hip replacements on the right-hand side. I am slowing down. But I still think about the world as with veracity and I, I take the input with as much excitement and processing power that I ever did, sometimes more because I'm sober now, to be honest. Um, when you both have a look at the challenges we face as a country, uh, you know, recently, over the last three, six months, AI suddenly shows up as like, we really need to talk about this. What do we need to to ready ourselves with when it comes to understanding concepts of science in order to be able to process what we need to process come not only election time, but like how we shop, how we live? It's a very big question and a very important one. I think going back to something you said earlier, I think that the building blocks of science, that's important. But, it's, you know, then you have to start seeing what they are. My, my point, too, about science teaching is that it's, it's too often just facts. It, it is what science has discovered, but that's not science. And any little primary child can understand a simple science experiment. You make a cake and it comes out of the oven and it's all crappy and flat and awful. Now, you don't immediately say, right, I know what we've got to do. We've got to double the sugar and triple the temperature and halve the water. You say, what's gone wrong here? The hypothesis is I didn't turn the oven on. Okay, what do you do? You repeat the experiment. You don't change every variable. You just change the temperature of the oven and it comes out right. Now, that's, that's science. That's a process of science. And you can do that with the tiniest kid in the world if you say, well, what's going on here? How do we spoil it? But you need the confidence to know what the process is. It's not hard, but you, you need to have it. And that's why so little science is taught in science. I think to have that under your belt means that you can look at advertisements. The, the, the internet is flooded with the most extraordinary nonsense about health. We formed, five of us formed, what, 10 years ago, Friends of Science in Medicine, which is really to combat some of this this nonsense that's flooding the internet. But people have no ability to say, oh, you know, this is rubbish and that's true. They have no ability to say, well, let me be sceptical, not cynical, sceptical about this and test it against the things that I know are right. So that loss of ability is a huge one as we're flooded by the anti-vaxxers and the flat earthers. We get a lot of them on the channel. They write into, you know, this can't be true, the earth is round, mostly from America, but not always. So that ability, um, which is the true essence of science, is, I think, crucial, and I think we're further away from it than we were. I think one of the things that will come through to you again and again if you're a science communicator is that we're talking about not a subject that's a list of facts, but we're talking about a process, a process by which we can mm. understand the world, a process by which we can cooperate with others, a process by which we can show that uh, through two, three, four, ten people working together are bound to produce more questions than answers. And if they produce more questions than answers, they're well on the way to using science to understand the world. And that's what we're all involved in. When we think about a scientist, we think of someone, oh, they're very clever and they know a lot. But actually, they're only where they are because they have spent decades going, I have no idea. I don't know and I want to know and being comfortable with not knowing. I think that's true. It's true to be to being comfortable being not knowing and I think that's the reason why uh, when somebody asks a question, a student in school or 
some member of the family, the next door neighbour, if somebody asks you a question about why something happens or how something works, if you can respond, first of all, with more questions, you'll find that they'll find you'll be delving into the uh, truth of the matter in a deeper way um, because of the cooperation between people who are sharing questions and sharing the way they seek out answers. And it's also some of the people who are most knowledgeable and, and, and predominant in their field are also the most dogmatic and they'll make a pronouncement and then pride says they're not going to back away with it. And if you look at the whole tangled question of climate science now, it's absolutely full of, of this. We, we don't seem any longer to have discussions. We have arguments. And in arguments, you say, this is my position and I'm not going to bloody well change. Uh, I'm just going to force it at you. So we're losing the ability to discuss and argue something out um, in a sort of give and take way. You know, I want a discussion with you about climate change. I want to know if my ideas are right or wrong or how I should modify them. In an argument, I don't want to do that. I just want to tell you what I know and you should believe. And that's almost... That's greatly fostered, of course, by social media, but it's almost the hallmark of, uh, of what goes for discussion these days and cancelling them if you don't like what somebody says. Does it come down to humility, Rob? Well, it comes down to as, as lots of things. I mean, it, 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 humility is perhaps there. Um, ability to monitor yourself and say, hang on, uh, need I go back and revise this? It comes down to reading widely. I mean, you'll read some arguments. I read, I read the national paper. I wouldn't say my politics are probably those of most of the people who write in it, but I take some care to read the columns of the people I know have politics different from mine because sometimes in there, like it or not, I'll find something that makes me think, oh, yeah, I'll give that some thought. And I do find it changes your mind. It's very hard sometimes to let go of the things that you have publicly seen you think are right. It, it takes none of it's humility. It's, it's, it's part of the scientific process. You've got to be prepared to let something go if the evidence takes you in another way. And that should be a pride for scientists, not um, an injury to their, their pride. One of our Nobel Prize winners, Eccles, Sir John Eccles, had a sort of turning point in his career where he stopped doing that about the things he believed in and actually said, no, no, this is wrong. Let me explore this. And it completely changed the way he did his science. He got a Nobel Prize out of it. And one thing that we all need to realise when we're seeking answers to questions is that we're almost certain to get to a position where we realise that the questions are bringing about more questions and this happens, it's a good thing. It's a good thing for us to be humble about the things we've discovered, to be inquisitive about the things we are yet to understand and to be cooperative in the way we share knowledge and share information. And by doing these things, by sharing things, knowledge and information, we're bound to help increase the amount of, in, in, the amount of information and the amount of uh, understanding that goes on between people as they seek answers to questions. There are there are other sinister uh, things afoot too, if I can call them that. And the role of universities used to be one where you know open discussion, open 
argument were really the soul of the places. They have become now terribly dependent on international students. International students come come in and they need the, you know, the university need the money. So I got to the point where in our university where I had people sitting in my science classes who couldn't speak a word of English. I don't know how some of them passed. They must have done a lot of work behind the scenes because you didn't have uh, artificial intelligence to help them and you didn't have cheating things on the internet. But uh, the universities are driven very often by a financial factor, which is eroding the ability to say, no, we, we will we'll work in a different way and, and treat ideas as the predominant and disagreement as a must. If I were in a university, I would have a trigger warning above the front gate, which says, you come in here, expect to have the things you believed in challenged. But we've got a lot of people who, you've got students who will control a class because if you say something happened in, say, world politics, they say, that's not true, and you can't offend them. You can't fail too many because if you fail too many, the economics of the university suffer. So you've got to lower your pass rate. All of that's happened, all of that and more. We find we find universities running faculties or at least departments, which are frankly um, irrational health practices masquerading as science, and they do it under the science banner. So there are huge economic attacks, really, on the processes that used to be fundamental to uh, examining the world as it should be examined and throwing out the rubbish that doesn't work. And as you seek as you seek answers to questions, remember, look for cooperation, look for joint information, look for everything that seems to be of value and is of value, but never put gum in your hair. <laughs> <laughs> I can't think of a better way to say thank you both so much for your time. You mean so much to me and so many people in our nation and the gift you've given us as a country cannot be underestimated. I'm just so grateful you spent the time. And, and thanks for responding to my random email uh, that I sent you because I, I was looking for videos to show Wolfie on YouTube because I'm like, there's, I know this. I want to show you how this works. I remember a video from when I was a kid, Rob and Dean. There was moustaches. There were turtlenecks. It's brilliant. <laughs> and we found... We found, and I started watching these your videos on YouTube, and I saw the email. I'm like, I got to talk to these guys. So thank you so much for allowing me to still share what I had with my youngest guys. Yeah, well, you just, you're the best. Thank you. I should very kind of you. It's great to have a good discussion and not an argument. No, lovely. Thank you very much. <laughs> that was Dean Hutton and Rob Morrison. The YouTube channel, which contains hundreds of clips from the legendary science TV show, is called The Curiosity Show. Wolfie's all over it. Uh, he doesn't care that it's in 4x3 and it's transferred from a VHS tape. It's great. Enjoy some discovery yourself. We talked a lot about kids' TV today. We talked a lot about the discovery of children and children, you know, being having their eyes open to science. But it shouldn't be. It's not limited to kids. You know, I'm enjoying very, very much enjoying reappropriating myself and rediscovering these things as I talk to Wolfie about things. And it's wonderful. It's a beautiful thing to be present to. And look, when it came time for me to get sober, as a part of getting sober in the recovery program that I'm in acceptance of a higher power is an important thing one of the you know basically something bigger than yourself and for me the one that i came to is essentially the the universe the laws of physics 
like unbelievable. The magnitude of the way that a universe works, the way that physics works, the way that, you know, these extraordinary forces grow and shape and explode and shrink and compress and enlarge and evolve our world. And they govern every single aspect of my life, right down to the, the atoms in my body is something that I am just truly reverent in front of. It's completely agnostic. It doesn't care how I feel about it. It just is. And I am humble before it and I obey it. <laughs> because if I, you know, you can't not obey the laws of thermodynamics. If you go, wow, there's this extraordinary flame here. I'm just going to walk straight into it. You're going to get fucking burned. So you have to be, but it's great. I love it because it doesn't, it doesn't punish. It's not vengeful. It just is. And it is at the primary point. I think I love about it is that entropy and equilibrium are a massive part of it. And uh, that's always really struck me. Really, really struck me. And it's always something that aligned to me is that there's a, there's a balance in every equation, really. Whether it be pressure or temperature or mass or whatever. There's a, you know, where gravity pulling one item towards, like the, the, there's a balance in the equation to pull an object towards a, flame, a thing. There's a amount of force required that matches the amount of mass. You know, it's, it's, it's balances and everything. That's essentially what I'm saying. I've rabbited on a bit too much. Thanks so much for helping me make this show. Andy Ma, who's on post-production, on audio and video post. Thanks, Bruce Steele, for the research and the production support. Thanks, Mike Mills, also known as Toehide, for all the music. And thanks, Rachel Barrett, for executive producing everything. Come and see your show. The link's in the show notes. Uh, jump on the mailing list. The link's in the show notes. Have a great day. That link's not in the show notes. That bit's up to you. <laughs> all right. I'll see you Wednesday. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. 
Code PROGRAM.